Mission, um, thank you for being here. Welcome back to all the weary travelers. I know uh, if you're anything like me, a lot of times you need a vacation from your vacation to rest up from what you just did for the week. Uh, so we're glad that everyone is back and with us this morning. Now, if you have been with us for almost two years, December would have been the two-year mark that we are going through the book of Matthew. If you have been here that whole time, you deserve a pat on the back because we are about to finish Matthew today. We are finishing through the gospel of Matthew. It has been a long road, but speaking for myself and I hope for all of you, uh, it has been an extremely fruitful road. It has been an extremely convicting road. There are many times where I find myself uh, relaying the message that Matthew, that the gospel of Matthew being preached here has instilled in my heart to others uh, as I talk with them about what God is doing in my life. So it has definitely been fruitful, and I pray that today is no different. I pray that today is convicting. I pray it is fruitful for us uh, as well. Now, I have been inundated with material this week. Uh, you type in the Great Commission into Google and see how many results you get. Um, there's a lot. We have every week, Eric brings me the books when I'm about to preach. I feel like every week there's like three more in there. Um, he, he just keeps piling them in and, and handing them to me. So I look through all of those. So the, the good part about preaching the Great Commission is there is a lot of material out there. The bad part about preaching the Great Commission is there is a lot of material out there. You have to cipher through it. You have to figure out what is relevant, what applies to the particular context you're in and, and all of those things. So uh, this week has been trying, but also, again, very fruitful and convicting. Um, the beauty of this text is as pastors, we sometimes fight the urge to try to come up with something clever or new or a new way of saying it that you've never heard before. And I think today uh, needs to just be back to the basics. I think today just needs to draw us back to square one. It needs no, as, as the great theologian Joe Dirt would say, no churching up, okay? This is just what it says. This is what Jesus wanted us to say or to hear. You have to imagine these are the last words he says to his disciples here on earth. It might be important for us to get. So this needs to drive us back to the basics. It needs to convict us, not guilt us, convict us to move. It needs to encourage us to get moving, not beat us down if we happen to not be doing these things. It needs to light a fire under us so that we will have a fervent desire to preach the gospel, to make disciples and not twist it around to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. He was speaking to someone else or he is speaking to the church or he is speaking to the pastors. See, the problem in evangelicalism nowadays is too many excuses are offered too many justifications are accepted. Too many reasons are allowed as to why we don't have to do this individually, why we don't have to be a missional church, why we can just be an attractional church and people will come see us and we don't have to tell them the whole truth of the gospel. And let's not talk about sin because that might offend somebody and drive them away. And guess what they take with them is their checkbook. And we, we don't want to do that in evangelicalism today. And I want to be as straightforward as I can. Uh, most, mostly family here today. This is mostly Mission Church's family here today. I want to be as straightforward as I possibly can with you today. If you are not actively engaged in carrying out the Great Commission in some form or fashion, if you are not in the active process and constant pursuit of making disciples, you are living in sin. 
There is no other way to slice that. And if you utterly refuse to actively pursue making disciples in your life, you may want to check your heart and ask if you need salvation instead of motivation. Because this is basic. This is what Jesus said makes a disciple. Again, last thing he says, it's very, very important. This is a serious text. Many theologians call this the crux and climax or major focal point of not only this gospel, but the entire New Testament. John MacArthur, who has written, I looked, I googled how many books he has written, by the way. I couldn't even, it was like the population of the world. Like there was just varying degrees. Some said up to 150 books this guy has written. It's a lot. So author, John MacArthur, who has studied the Bible seemingly his whole life, would even go so far as to say this text represents the focal point of all of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. You see, this has been the mission of God since even before time began. It was not put into practice. It was not put into action until Adam sinned and separated man from God. And that is when this mission began taking place. But it has been the plan since even before that. It was God's plan to redeem his chosen people and then send them out to share the redemptive work that he himself was carrying out for all tongues, all tribes, and all nations. The chief end of a believer in Christ, the chief end in the body of Christ is summed up here. And you may be thinking, but I thought our chief end was to glorify God, to glorify Christ. And it is. You are correct. And God is clear that the way we most glorify him in this world is to share the good news that he is a loving and merciful God and that he will pardon sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. Quoting MacArthur again, says the supreme way God chose to glorify himself was through redemption of sinful men. And it is through participation in that redemptive plan that believers themselves most glorify God. I hope this adequately portrays the importance of this text before we dive headfirst into the details and the ins and outs of what is being said here. I hope this adequately displays why I have been so convicted this week, why I have taken a good hard look at myself and asked the question, do I really believe, that? do I practice this, do I believe this, am I carrying out the Great Commission? What you're about to hear for the next, I won't guess, however long, is maybe more of a confession than a sermon. Because this week I've been highly convicted that maybe I don't believe this nearly as much as I proclaim to when I get up here to preach on Sundays. Or at least my actions may state that I don't. And I want us all to feel the weight of that. I want us all to ask that question this morning. My goal for today is to answer basically one question. Is what makes the Great Commission so great? So, before we get to that exact answer, we need to look at some of the details. So, if you would, open to Matthew 28. We're going to look through 16 through 20. But in verse 16, what do we see there? It says, the 11 disciples met Jesus on this mountain. Now, why 11 is pointed out here. We know why there is only 11. We know Judas has killed himself at this point. He is no longer with the group. So, we understand that. But it is specifically mentioned in Acts chapter 1, before the church even kicks off and does anything, before they begin carrying out this great commission, that they replace Judas. And they replace him with some guy we never hear of later. So 
it seems to be that it was maybe more important that they just had 12 dudes than it was that they had specifically this guy. Now, I think God chose that man. I think God used that man. We just don't hear about what he may or may not have done in Scripture later. But there's a reason why they replace him and get 12 people back in the group. 12 is all over Scripture. It is a number of perfection. It is a number of completeness. There were 12 disciples, just like there were 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel. This represented the whole of God's people. This was everyone that was included in God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And this is why they chose to replace Judas. Now, I don't, I don't want to read too far into this, um, but I, I also believe every detail of Scripture is purposely put there by a sovereign God. So, there's a reason why it says 11 and it just doesn't say the disciples, right? And reading through many books again this week, why didn't they just immediately replace Judas and go as 12 to see Jesus? And many theologians believe that this is a specific detail mentioned here, that there is 11 because 11 is a not complete number in any way. It it's can't be factored like 12 can, all of these things, right? It is just an odd number. And it is God saying, look, I'm going to carry out my perfect mission with an imperfect group of people, with an imperfect church, with an imperfect body. They are never going to be perfect. They are never going to be complete until the day I return. And yet, my mission will be completed, even through sinful men like yourselves. Now, whether this was on purpose or not, the lesson can still be learned. Uh, that God is going to take sinful people to complete his mission. So we can look at ourselves and say, you know what? We don't have to be a perfect church. We don't have to be a perfect individual before I carry out this great commission. I can go as I am, striving to be more Christ-like, striving not to sin, but understanding that we're never going to be perfect, and yet we are still qualified because of Jesus, because of what we will see in verse 20. We are still qualified to carry this out today. If you are a believer in Christ in this room, you are qualified and thus commanded to carry out this great commission. We also see another specific detail here. They went to Galilee. Why Galilee? Why does this matter? Well, if you look back at Matthew 4, I know that was two years ago now, almost. Matthew 4, you see Jesus kicking off his earthly ministry on a mountain in Galilee. Why Galilee? Why does it, it may not have been the same mountain, but we do know it was the same region. What is the significance here? Galilee is undeniably and always has been a Gentile region. So Jewish Jesus is telling his Jewish followers that his plan all along was not for the Jews only. This has been his plan from the beginning of time to carry out his mission to all nations, not just, just the Jewish people. We see here in Verse 17, that even some of the disciples here doubted. It says they worshiped, but some of them doubted. How much more imperfection can he point out that they are still going to carry out his mission to all nations? He starts his ministry in Gentile country. He finishes his earthly ministry in Gentile country. And this was the plan from the beginning. And many times if you read the Old Testament, you see the Jews thinking, well, we're God's people, and we're on, the only people that God is going to save. And this me message isn't for the nations. And yet we see places like 1 Chronicles 16, 20. Declare his glory among the nations. 
His marvelous works among all peoples. Psalm 45, 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And this is, this is a biggie. If you take notes, write down Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. See, God chose Israel, but he chose Israel to be his mouthpiece to the nations. He chose Israel as his chosen people, but with a specific mission to carry this message to the world. See, even though they were God's chosen people, it was always, always, always his plan for his glory and his salvation to go out to everyone. This should tell us something, that if the gospel is good news for you and me, then it is good news for anyone and everyone. Anyone we come in contact with, whether we are here in Bowling Green or we are in Bangladesh, it is good news for any and everyone that God God's plan was to save people from all nations. The problem is, is that we don't treat it that way. We don't always treat it as good, and we don't even treat it as news sometimes, because we don't say it. We don't tell people about it. We, like the Israelites, treat it as if it was meant for just us. I'm good, so why does it matter? Let them find it on their own, as if we found it ourselves. Sometimes I think as, as Christians that we sometimes live as if, as if we wish Jesus hadn't said this. Can't you just do it, God, yourself? Like, really? That's really difficult. Have you, people don't want to hear this news. People don't, they reject it. They, they don't like when I bring it up. Can't you just do it yourself? I wish you had never told us to. I'll do all these other things. I'll do the good deeds. I'll do the, the handing out uh, money and and go to the soup kitchens and I'll, I'll do charity work and I'll do, all, I'll do all of that. But did you really have to tell me to do this one? And this is where we have to get back to the basics. We have to ask ourselves, do we really believe this stuff? Do we really believe the Bible? Do we really believe the gospel? See, most of you are thinking right now, Yes, I wouldn't be here and listen to you preach for an hour if I didn't believe the Bible to be true. Of course, of course, I there's no doubt in your mind. No question that you believe the Bible. But if you do believe the Bible, then you have to believe all parts of the Bible. Agreed? Right? So if we're going to claim this to be true, we have to believe all parts of it. That includes the parts that state that people who do not believe this gospel who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus, are dying and going to hell. A hell they deserve, a hell that is, it is not wrong for God to pour his wrath out in. But that is where they are going, and it is not going to be enjoyable. Let me break that down for you. The latest census data calculates that 31% of the world's almost 7 billion people claim to be Christians. That number is probably higher than actual 
because people check a box and say they're Christian when they're probably not. But let's just go with it. 31% of almost 7 billion people. So that same data states that on average, 151,600 people die every single day in this world. Every day. Doing the math, taking 31%, that means that every single day, 104,604 people plunge themselves into an eternal hell that they chose, that they deserve, but they are not going to enjoy. And we have the key to their cells. 104,000 people every single day. And we have the keys to their cells. And listen to how lame this sounds when we, th when we think about that number and we think about what they are experiencing. It's going to be awkward. They might reject me. They might, they might even laugh at me. I might be the, the laughing stock at work and people, people kind of avoid me because they know I'm going to bring Jesus up. It's inconvenient. I'll do it next time. Or the thousand other reasons that I myself have been convicted that I've used to not share the gospel with someone. See, if we truly believe the Bible, we also have to believe the part that states the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So the gospel is what will save those 104,000 people a day. The truth of the gospel is what will keep them from experiencing that hell. The gospel is what changes hearts. The gospel is the good news. So I ask you again, do you believe it? How do you know if you believe it? Turn with me, or I think it'll be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 15. Like I said, it, it's up on the screen. So it says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We'll look at verse 15 in just a little bit. But what do we see here? We see an undeniable connection between believing and and speaking. I believe, so I spoke. We believe, so we spoke. It was just assumed. The gospel was meant to be preached. There's no question here. If you believe it, you will speak it. You will speak about it. A silent, privatized faith would have been completely inconceivable to the New Testament church. There would have been no conversations of like, oh, you're a Christian all this time? Really? Huh. Didn't know. Because we believe, so we speak. And we have shared many incredible stories about martyrs in the past and, and people that have bravely embraced their fate, willing to die while singing and quoting Scripture, while being burned at the stake, catching a book and reading from it because they believed this gospel to be so true that even in their dying breath, they wouldn't shut up about it. They knew what was going to happen and their families knew what was going to happen. What did their family say? Don't shut up about it. I don't, I don't want to be married to a weakling. Get up there. Preach the gospel so that others can be saved. We're not going to tell another story today, but estimates range today from 10, depends on where you look, 10 to 100,000 martyrs are still killed every single year because of their Christian faith. Let's just take the average. That's 55,000 people Per year. You know what I can tell you is true about every single one of them? Everyone, I can assure you that I've never met them. 
every one of them could have avoided their fates if they had simply kept their mouth shut. They can be- you can believe anything you want in this world, in any country of the world, no matter who the government is, no matter who the president or the king or the potentate or whatever it is, doesn't matter who is in office. If you just keep your mouth shut and your head down, they're not going to kill. They may kill you, but they're not going to kill you for your faith. But they, they believed it. So they spoke about it and they died because of it. See, it was, it was when they bravely spoke out loud what they so passionately believed that they were killed. Because they knew it was the only truth that could save others. So they spoke But there's so many religions in the world, Pastor Justin. Isn't it arrogant to tell 104,000 people every single day that if you don't turn from what you believe into what I believe, that you're going to hell? There's devout Muslims. There are devout Buddhists. There are devout Sikhs. There are devout Hindus. There are devout, you name it. They are devout to what they believe. Is it not arrogant for us to tell them that they're wrong and we are right? And I'll tell you that it's not only arrogant, but it can be dangerous and futile as well. So there's your three points if you want. Gospel is arrogant, dangerous, and futile if Christ has not been raised. If we are preaching something that isn't true, then yes, it is extremely arrogant to go to someone and be like, hey, what you believe? It's not right. What I believe is correct because I made it up, because I read it somewhere. But we know based on last week, and other books in history. We know that Christ was raised from the dead. So we know this to be true. 2 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19 says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, we are preaching a lie. If we are preaching a lie, then we are calling to do something that will not save them. And that would be extremely arrogant. But this says if Christ has not been raised, we are most to be pitied. How many of you have heard this saying, talking about believers and non-believers? Well, if you don't believe and you die and you're wrong, something bad's going to happen to you. But if I believe and I turn out to be wrong... Eh, no big deal. Paul would say it's a big deal. Christ calls us to pick up our cross daily, to suffer as Christ suffered, to join in Christ's sufferings. We are people most to be pitied. Of all the people on the earth, if we believe this and it isn't true, we are most to be pitied in this life. So there is no, it's no big deal if it's not, if it's not true, it's no big deal. And furthermore, we'll be preaching a gospel to people that makes it a big deal to them as well because they will then live out what we are telling them to live and it will be a lie. But since we do know that Christ has been raised, then it is arrogant to keep silent while 104,000 people die and plunge themselves into hell when we know the truth that will keep them from that. And then we say things like, well, I'm okay. We enjoy our salvation, but we don't speak of our salvation to others. Next, the gospel can be dangerous. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The gospel is dangerous. It may get you killed. 
There may be people in this room right now that later in life are killed because of their faith. And I'm not even saying they may have to go overseas for that. I don't know what America's about to turn into. I don't know what 40 more years of this will, will, will cause. We may all die for our faith. I have no idea. People were killed last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago now, because of, they were at a church. The gospel can be dangerous. Should that bother us? Do we have to have a death wish in order to follow Christ? Not a death wish like I'm going to jump my motorcycle over the Grand Canyon. Not an evil Knievel death wish. But we should be compelled to death-defying missions because we know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us and that if we are separated from the body, we are at home with the Lord. So death should not scare us. This is what brings us peace in the midst of living out the gospel in places where people will hate you for it, in places where people resist you for it, in places where people will tell you you're crazy for going there or you're crazy for taking your kids there and raising them there. Do you know what could happen? Do you know what they might do if they find out why you're there? It can be dangerous. Why would we willingly do that? It makes no sense for us to do that unless, unless Christ is risen. Unless we know this is the truth that will save 104,000 people a day. If we know Christ has risen, then 2 Corinthians 15 tells us that we will be raised also. And not only, the, not only us, but all of the saints from all of time, past, present, and future, because Christ was raised, they can be raised as well. That is why we go. You see, the gospel states that God sent his son to exactly the place I just described. A place that would resist him. A place that would reject him. A place that was hard to reach that wasn't really even asking for a savior. We weren't really seeking that out. We were loving our sin, living in it, and relishing every moment of it. But we go in order to emulate what Christ did for us to save us. See, too many times we refuse to go somewhere because we might be in danger. We might die. Jesus willingly came somewhere he knew would lead to his death. Certain death. He knew the plan. He knew what was going to happen, and yet he came. If Christ is raised, then proclaiming this gospel is never dangerous enough to keep us silent. Paul says this, right? The sufferings of this world are not worthy to be... Kill me. Like, how do you threaten Paul? <laughs> I'll kill you. All right. Uh, we'll let you live. Okay, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whichever way you want to do this, let's, let's just get it over with, right? You can't threaten that man. That's how we should live. You can't threaten us enough to keep us silent because we know that the gospel, while dangerous, is true and worth it. The gospel is futile. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is useless if Christ has not been risen. You've got faith in a lie and it's not going to change anything. You might as well be a devout Muslim or a devout Buddhist. Just pick something. Be devout in it. But we know Christ is alive. Our preaching is not in vain because he is alive. And if he is alive, we know that his words will never come back void. We know that if he is alive, then the gospel itself will lead those to repentance and saving faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit. See, the gospel is not arrogant because it is true and it is the only real foundational truth there is. 
Because Jesus lives, we can humbly but confidently proclaim it. The gospel is not dangerous because we know that even if it leads to our death, we will be made alive with Christ and live eternally with our risen Savior so we can boldly and unashamedly proclaim it. You see, this gospel is not futile because we know that all authority has been given Jesus and he will not return his word void. He will save those to the uttermost whom he has chosen to save through the power of the gospel. So we indiscriminately proclaim this to anyone who will listen. To anyone that will listen to us. See, this is why the Great Commission is so great because it is in no way about us. It is in no way about our efforts. It is in no way about our works. It is in no way about how many times we do this. It is in no way about our strength. And it is in no way about our power. The Great Commission is great because it is all about Jesus. You should feel right now, as I even say those words, a weight lifted off your shoulders to go, it's not even on me. I don't even have to say the right words. I don't even... I can botch a gospel presentation and people can get saved. Or I can give you the greatest one that's ever, ever been given and not, them not be saved because it is all about Jesus. And how do we know this? Because if you ask people, hey, what's the Great Commission? Almost everybody, if they've been raised in church and know the Bible, will say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Which is true, that is in there, but what we do is we ignore what came before that and after that. What does Jesus say here right before he tells them to go do this? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I want you all to think about this. Most of us in this room, I won't name names, are too young to know this because I don't think it happens anymore. Has anybody ever participated in a bring your kid to work day? All right, never mind. The youngest people in the room are the ones. All right, if you don't know what it is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's you bring your kids to work and you show them what you do for a living. You know what's never happened, not one time in the history of that event? Not one time in the history of time of bring your kids to work day have the parents brought their kids, shown them what they do, and be like, all right, y'all take care of it, and hired the kids and left and not done the job. And that is what it seems like Jesus is doing here. He is giving this to people who still doubt it. I, I just don't, I, I just don't get it. I hate looking down on the disciples when they're stupid and act foolish because most of the time I go, nah, I could, I could totally see myself doing that. But like this time, I just don't get it. What are you doubting? The guy has come back from the dead and they're sitting there like, could you do that Long John Silver's one again? That one was really, really cool. That's our favorite one. Or, you know, I'm parched. There's some water over there if you want to turn that into wine and prove it one more time. Like, what are they doubting? They're standing in front of a risen Christ that they know died a few days ago. But Jesus tells them that he has now all ultimate authority over everything. Heaven and earth is now his and under his authority. And if you've been following along with this story... If you can put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish disciple, you might be reacting, finally. You're supposed to come in here and crack some skulls, and instead you made it worse for all of us. Now we're getting killed because we have faith in you. You were supposed to come in and set up your kingdom, right? We named the, the sermon series King and Kingdom. They were expecting Jesus to come in and do something. 
to take up all authority. So when he says this, they're like, yes, it's about time. And instead, what does he do with his authority? He delegates it. He delegates it to the disciples, his lowly, coward, ragamuffin disciples. He tells them his mission is now their mission. His mission is now our mission. He tells them they go and carry this out. And here's the thing. He shouldn't have to tell them this. This is the coolest story. Like, these guys followed him around for three years and saw all the things he was doing. He healed people. He brought people back to life. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He helped a dude walk on water. He did all of these things. Not only that, he told them what was getting ready to happen, told them he was going to die, and told them he was going to come back three days later, pulled all of that off to precision, and they're still like, what do we do now? What do, what do, we, what do you want us to do? He shouldn't have to tell them. They should be clamoring to get away from him to go tell people about this risen Savior, to tell people what they have just seen. If I do anything even remotely cool, and some of you that have known me for very long know I'll tell a story over and over again. I smacked a fly out of midair one time with the thin end of a yardstick. Like, so not even the wide part of a yardstick. The thin end, first try, knocked it into a friend of mine. So he is my witness, in case y'all need to call him. First try, smacked it. That was 12 years ago. I'm working it into a sermon right now. If I do anything cool, you're going to hear about it. This guy came back from the dead. I feel like Jesus is telling them something he shouldn't have to say. Go home and Google, be careful a little bit, but Google dumb warning labels. I was going to show some pictures, but just due to time, we don't, I don't have them or anything. But my favorite one was a sign taped on the wall. It said, don't eat the gum from the urinal. What? That means someone, not one person. You don't put up a sign for one person doing something. You just go, man, you're an idiot. <laughs> that was stupid. This has happened enough at whatever place this is that they were like, we better put up a sign. This is becoming a problem. Like all these people are eating the gum out of the urinal. We got to do something to stop this. Of all the things that shouldn't be said, that's got to be on top of the list. But this is what Jesus is doing here. Why, why should the disciples be told to go tell this story? They should be waving at Jesus. See you, dude. We got something to do. We got to go tell them. But we know why. Because left to themselves, they're going to mess it up. Left to themselves, nothing will happen. No hearts will be changed. No one will trust them. No one will believe them. No sins will be convicted of. No sins will be repented of. It will just be noise. And they'll just be claiming something to be true. And no one will believe unless God does something. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim. The gospel is Jesus him we proclaim. The gospel is about Jesus only, and it must always be about Jesus only. So he tells us to go. But go do what? We've talked all this time about sharing the gospel. Is that what Jesus said to do? Go share the gospel? Go evangelize? Go cast seed? I mean, he tells us all of these things through his ministry, of, of course. But his last thing, the culmination of his ministry, what does he say specifically? It says, make disciples there's specificity that's right specificity i gotta let y'all know i went to college every once in a while specificity in his comment there's he doesn't say just go do this go take the mission right go make converts go tell people 
is go make disciples. The command is so much more encompassing than simply go share the gospel. But y'all are thinking, it's hard enough just to do that. I don't even like talking about Jesus. I can talk about God all day long. God has ceased to be an offensive word in our culture because it can mean so many different things. Jesus, on the other hand, everybody knows who you're talking about. Now, they may have a misconstrued idea of who it is, but they know who you're talking about. So you're saying sharing the gospel isn't enough. See, evangelism is the starting point of the Great Commission. Evangelism is the kickoff of discipleship. The problem for us is that discipleship is not a one-size-fits-all, one-stop shop, I can do this once, check it off my list, and call it a day, and I'll be done. Discipleship is ongoing. Discipleship is difficult. Discipleship is long. Discipleship is messy. Discipleship is a lifelong commitment, and it is utterly impossible to do without spending time. We all want to write a check. Here, go make disciples. Here, I'll, I'll write you all the checks you want. We don't want to spend our time. Time is our most valuable and scarcest resource that we have, especially in America, which is another problem for another day. But time is so scarce and so valuable, and that is exactly what it takes to make disciples. The Great Commission is a lifestyle, not an event. Not a task you check off on your weekly calendar. Okay, Great Commissioned. It is a lifestyle that you live. Discipleship starts even before someone professes faith in Jesus. That's what evangelism is. It is hopefully the start to your discipleship relationship. To a non-believer, you proclaim the gospel, and then you say, oh, you believe it? Now let's walk it out. You see, discipleship is where evangelism, or where, evangelism is where discipleship starts, not where it stops. It starts with the gospel. It continues in the gospel. It is empowered and shaped by the gospel. See, the Great Commission is not only sharing your faith, it is about sharing your lives. The fact that Jesus came, lived, died in our place, rose again three days later so that we, could have, that we would not have to face the divine wrath of God that we so justly deserve is what is empowers us to become disciples ourselves, to call people to be disciples, and then to make disciples as we continue to walk with them. And Jesus has entrusted that to us. He has delegated his authority to us, fellow sinners, to call other sinners to this truth. And then we baptize them into the Christ. We baptize them into the faith. Then we teach them to obey all the commands that Jesus gave, teaching them to obey the way Jesus obeyed. And this means the Great Commission is about proclaiming the truth, but then walking with someone as they learn how to apply the truth. And nothing can be more frustrating than walking with a baby Christian through things that you're like, why are you not getting this? And that is what we are called to. Some of you may be thinking right now, I'm not ready for that kind of responsibility. I'm still learning how to apply that truth in my life. Good. Because that is an ongoing thing as well. And you're exactly in the place you need to be to teach someone else. Because you can walk with them. This can get really, really messy. It means we have to let people see that we are in completely inadequate to be their Savior. We have to let others know who we are. They have to know us fully. They see us fully. We are vulnerable with them. They will see us fail. That means we have to let 
people know that in some areas of our life, we are still dirty, dirty hypocrites. Don't emulate this part of my life. I'm still working out the kinks. This means we have to proclaim the truth when that's the last thing somebody wants to hear. That means we have to listen to the truth when it's the last thing that we want to hear. This means living out really tough times with an audience. Because when bad things happen to us and we don't know how to handle it, what do we want to do? We want to hole up and not let anybody see us struggle, not let anybody see us fall down, right? And yet it's, it calls us to do that with an audience. The, this, this is calling people to be holy because Christ was holy. That means changing a whole lot of stuff in your life. This means telling people it's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to be okay with staying that way. Christ calls us to so much more. He calls us to strive to be like Him. He made disciples that made disciples that made disciples so much so that we are now 2,000 years removed and 6,400 miles away from where He gave the command talking about Jesus today. Because disciples made disciples who made disciples. If a disciple can be defined as one who makes disciples, then the call to make disciples who make disciples should be obvious. So what happens if you remove yourself from the equation and that person falls away from faith? Falls away from faith. You didn't make a disciple. You made a convert. You made a Justin Crowite, not a Christian. If that person's faith depends on you being there to walk to walk with them. You didn't make a disciple. That disciple needs to learn to walk on his own. That is what you are there for. But their salvation does not depend on you. It depends on Jesus. And if you're anything like me, these thoughts come to mind. Does Jesus really understand the culture we live in today? Does he watch the news in 2017? This won't work. This is... There's no way we can pull this off. People aren't going to listen. The country is becoming more and more divided on everything. Chair's black. No, it's not. Can't be friends. Everything. So if I bring up Jesus, that's already a divisive topic. What do you think is going to happen, Jesus? And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You can't. You can't pull this off. That is why I promise to be with you. Every single one of you until the end of the age, until as long as it takes for me to carry out my mission, I am with you. And guess what I bring with me? My authority. I have authority over all of those people that you think are going to reject you immediately. I have authority over their hearts. I have authority over their actions. I have authority over what they think of you after you have the conversation. It is my authority, and I am going to be with you until all of my children are adopted into my family, until all of my lost and wandering sheep are brought back to the flock. I am with you always to the end of the age. So you don't have to do this on your own. Stop worrying that you didn't say the right thing. Stop worrying that you won't say the right thing. Or what, what if, Pastor Justin, what if they ask me a question and I have to say, I don't know. Well, it's probably the end of the world and Jesus is going to come back and you're going to hell. No, like Jesus has authority over that as well. Jesus will have authority over how that is received. Jesus has authority over whether you have that answer or not. You may think you have it. Jesus has authority to make you forget it in that moment if he wants to. 
So don't go in there cocky either. Oh, I got this. There's no question you can ask me that I'm not going to know the answer to. All authority has been given to Jesus. He's called us to do this. Don't wait for Jesus' call to go do this. This is not Jesus calling you to do it. That happened 2,000 years ago when he wrote, when this was written down. Every Christian, every disciple, every person that believes the gospel is called to this. The question, when we are tempted to make, tempted to make these excuses, is what I've already asked a whole bunch of times. Do we believe him? Do we believe that Jesus is going to be with us? He promised to. Do we believe him? Do we believe that it will work? Remember what it said in 2 Corinthians. If we believe, we will speak. But for what ultimate purpose? To make disciples? To grow churches? To make converts? To get people to confess faith? Even those things are secondary. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. So this is talking about if we believe, we will speak. And then it says, For it is all for your sake, speaking to the hearers, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is why we do it. It's not just to make disciples. The reward is secondary. The reward of heaven is secondary. The, we do this all for God's glory to be more clearly seen in the world. To, so God can be more clearly worshipped for the sake of others, but for the glory of God. So I ask you again, what makes the Great Commission so great? The short answer is Jesus. The only answer is Jesus. So I have to ask you, church, I have to ask myself, do I really believe this? Do I believe it enough to speak it? We must be diligent. We must give our very lives to this pursuit 104,000 people today are depending on it and tomorrow and the next day so may we believe this gospel and if we believe it if we claim to be Jesus's may we go may we speak may we make disciples for their good and God's ultimate glory pray with me